Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Shugata Ray, Associate Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and winner of the first AAR Book Award in Religion and the Arts. He's here to speak to us about his book, Climate Change and the Art of Devotion, Geo-Aesthetics in the Land of Krishna, 1550 to 1850, published with the University of Washington Press. Congratulations and thanks for joining me. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is a really innovative and interesting topic, one that I was uh, unfamiliar with, but I really enjoyed the book. You know, you focus on this relationship between visual practice and environmental distress. I'm not familiar with a whole lot of research in uh, religious studies, at least, that looks at this intersection. So can you talk a little bit about how this project began for you and, and what were some of the broader conceptual interventions you were hoping to make with the book? Absolutely. And I think in a way, the question of climate change and religion or climate change and art is really something that has emerged very recently, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, partly because of of the massive uh, crisis, climate crisis that we are facing, but also transformations in the humanities more broadly with scholarship that has taken material very seriously. And in a way, religious studies or the study of religion is really a a very critical, critical arena to think about how climate change can affect practices of devotion. So that was where I was interested in trying to think about the intersections between what what is now called the Little Ice Age and the formation of Vaishnavism or the worship of Krishna in, in Vrindavan, which is, as we all know, the foundational moment in the history of Hinduism in India. So what the book was trying to do, I mean, there is there has been scholarship on Vrindavan, Mathura, Braj, this region in North India, where Krishna is believed to have spent his youth. From the 19th century, there's, there has been seminal work on the liturgy, on the theology, on the even on the visual practices. But what, as I was right for my book, what I really wanted to do is look at this, this moment where the intersection between the transformation in, envi- in the environment was intersecting with the transformation in devotional practices. So that, in a way, was what this book tried to do, and it tried to bring together debates in climate change with debates in devotional practices. Uh, partly all because uh, much of the work on the Little Ice Age has focused on certain themes, certain regions. Thematically, the focus has been political issues rather than religion, culture, or the arts. Geographically, the focus is usually on Europe and North America rather than Asia or Africa. So my focus on the climatic epoch of the Little Ice Age was a, was a strategic uh, move to sort of challenge the Eurocentricism of scholarship on, on this period, on this climatic period, by looking at Vrindavan, Mathura, Braj, and how the visual culture was transformed by environmental changes. Yeah, and one of the new categories that you, you bring that I think will be useful going forward is this idea of geoaesthetics. Can you tell us how you define geoaesthetics and then 
how can you imagine scholars of religion maybe taking up this approach in their own research? Absolutely. So the idea of geoaesthetics, in a way, has a long history. If we think about, uh, let's say, work, uh, let's say, if you think about um, other scholars who have turned to this this idea of bringing together geography, geology, and the domain of aesthetics. But the work mostly has focused on contemporary art. But my my argument is this, that it fundamentally the material culture of religion, whether we talk about the worship of stones as icons or the worship of forests or the worship of rivers or the worship of land itself is, is a practice in that geo-aesthetics. It's a practice in trying to think about the aesthetics of of uh, the ecological the the, the tra- tractions between the ecological and the aesthetics so in that sense i think there is much that can be done with it not just within let's say scholarship in hinduism but if you think about christianity or islam the way way stone is imagined the way stone is uh, thought through now the intellectual genealogies of the term really takes us back to uh, Brodel, who would write about geohistory, and then Deleuze and Guattari talks about geophilosophy. So, from that moment, from Brodel's geohistory to geophilosophy to what I I brought it I brought in the idea of a geoaesthetics, uh, trying to think about how artistic and architectural practices were shaped through human interaction with geographic, geological, botanical, zoological even mineralogical or climatic formations. Yeah, I think it would certainly be uh, an interesting way to, especially people that are working on material religion, to uh, to, to think about this in especially non-Western contexts. So I hope they'll, they'll take it up in the future. As you kind of delve into this case study on this region of Braj, you first look at the role of water in art and architecture. So can you tell us about how water structured life in Braj and then the ways it was used to symbolize religious life for the various groups in the region? So in the 16th century, what the region that is now called Braj was primarily an agro-pastoral region. So water was fundamental to the very survival of the communities who lived in, in this sort of north North Indian uh, region, and I, I mean, why Braj? I mean, water is fundamental to life for any community anywhere. But I think where Braj becomes an interesting case study is where the the, the natural topography, that is, the the what the river, the land, the forests, were considered as embodied ecological clusters. And there are so many texts that talk about the dust of Vrindavan, that talk about the alchemic quality of stone, or even the act of seeing water can transform the devotee. So in that sense, Braj really became an exemplary case study to think about how one brings together uh, ecological clusters with religious clusters. Now, Water or the worship of sacred water goes back to the very formation of of the religious of Hinduism, or in South Asia, thinking about the goddess Yamuna. But what we saw in Braj is that it was not just about the worship of 
icons, that is the sculpture of the river goddess, but the river itself was considered sacred. The river itself was considered a living matter. And that, for me, was so interesting that it really is being articulated precisely at the moment when we start seeing the massive droughts happening. And that, I don't think, was a coincidence, that that you have the droughts of the Little Ice Age, and immediately at that point, you have a certain riparian architecture developing that 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 insists on seeing this the running water and that is what i was trying that is where i think brudge becomes an exemplary site to think about the relationship between uh, artistic expression and drought uh, now one might say that this can be and a lot of uh, reviews of my book has said that it could have happened in the past it could have happened in the other sites, absolutely. I chose Braj as a case study. I think what I wanted to do is offer a method which could be used to think about the relationship between uh, droughts or climate change and ecological clusters and art in any other context. So for me, it was more of trying to think of a method to bring together these two fields that have not really been brought together until very recently. You, you certainly succeed in, in this task as a reader who's not familiar with either of your disciplinary fields. As you move forward, you, you move from the theme of water to the theme of land uh, through iterations of mountains, rocks, architecture. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the theological configuration of land uh, and the ways it's being articulated uh, in Braj and and then how this kind of helps us think about this relationship between climate change and temple architecture? So in Braj, if, if you think about pilgrimage practices, there are four clusters, that is water, the river Yamuna, the Theophanic River Yamuna, land, for instance, the Govardhan Hill that Krishna lifts, the forests, the sacred groves where Krishna Rooms with his devotees and ether or akasha that really holds together all these components. So the book, in that sense, is was I, I the way I structured the book was trying to have certain uh, fidelity to this ecological cluster. So each chapter then focuses on one primary ecological component of Braja's sacred ecosystem. So water, the river Yamuna, land, the hill. Uh, Again, if we talk about land, land, one must remember that land is also dust, land is also rocks. So in that particular chapter, I looked at Hindu temple architecture. Now, that is a very rich scholarship, this is a very rich body of scholarship, starting from Stella Cramrish. There has been much that has been written on Hindu temples. Uh, in the 1980s, sort of Marxist hist- historiography, uh, even feminist historiography has interjected in developing this field. But when we talk about the physical form of a temple, we still go back to that, that early 20th century moment where we see the temple as a symbol or a symbol of the macrocosm, of the primordial. Now, that understanding of the physical form of the temple. I wanted to 
complicate that understanding of that physical form of a temple. And, it is, and to argue that we have to think about architecture not just as symbolic. Yes, it is symbolic, but it is the very material of stone that is alchemic. And there are all these beautiful texts that talk about red sandstone that incites the love for Krishna. So bringing together alchemy, bringing together the, the, the idea of stone as living, as animate, for me was a methodological uh, move in trying to think of an eco-art history of Hindu temples, to, to take the conversation about the physical form of the temple beyond just the symbolic. And I think that is one uh, sort of uh, intervention that, that eco-art history, as I call it, can do is that it argues that the forest, the tree, the river, the, the temple, the icon is not merely a symbolic representation of the macrocosm, but it is living, animate. And that taking these elements as constitutive rather than emblematic was where I wanted to come to, with the Hindu temple. That's what I wanted to talk about. The very material as being constitutive to liturgy, to devotional practices. These kind of intersections, I think, come through in the, in the chapter on what you call forest, where you're looking at not only kind of the, the physical plant ecologies that are present at the moment, but also new forms of, of knowledge and kind of knowledge production during these times. So c can you tell us a little bit about this relationship uh, that's happening here and, and how it relates to this emergence of uh, this vegetal aesthetic of abundance that's uh, going on despite kind of the ecological crisis that's happening? So if we think about forests and, and, and sacred groves, um, what I found so interesting about this moment, the 18th century moment, is that as agriculture developed, as population increased led to the development of urban settlements, we see an emergence both in literature, in painting, and I argue in architecture and gardening practices as well, a, a certain imagination of of the of the wilderness an imagination of these kunjas or groves where krishna and radha would wander at night now it has a long history biophilia has a long history in vaishnavism it goes back let's say to texts such as gita govinda but the the, the urgency with which it sort of erupts in the 18th century, I would argue is not a coincidence. It is precisely because the, the region's fragile ecosystem is transforming and you have massive towns coming up, the forests, the, the natural vegetation is lost. 16th century accounts talk about the Mughals hunting lions in near Mathura. By the 18th century, it's, it's an agro-pastoral domain. So it's precisely at this moment that you have a certain vegetal aesthetics in in literature in in painting in architecture so again ornament that is the temple facades that were elaborately ornamented with floral imagery ornament was not merely allegorical but an episteme i would argue that connected lived practices with visual form and this 18th century architectural paradigm that mimics the kunjas or the sacred groves, again, allows us to think about this whole 
debate that has happened, again, not just in South Asia, but on sacred groves across in the Americas, in Africa, in Japan. Scholarship has always thought about sacred groves as this sort of near virgin forest. But I think that's sort of a, a very problematic way of understanding how groves were manipulated, groves were transformed in this point. And I, I'm try, I, so I, I'm trying to think of an approach to sacred forest that does not merely romanticize the pre-modern as the other, as this sort of a culture that is an Edenic culture that is close to nature. But to say that it's precisely at the moment of massive agro, 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 agri- agricultural change and pastoral change that a that a mythic imagination of wilderness is is emerging across media across genres. Now, in this this chapter on ether, I'll, I'll allow you to kind of describe how that that fits in there that that concept, but. Uh you look at a temple that kind of blends British colonial style elements with with Hindu themes, and people might even kind of dismiss it for those kind of configurations. But can can you tell us why you focused on this temple and then how mediums of of sound and music uh, help establish a a sacred ecosystem in the architecture? Absolutely. So, And you're absolutely right. I mean, the temple has been dismissed by scholarship. In fact, in the 19th century, uh, a colonial uh, F.S. Krauss, the colonial district administrator, who actually wrote one of, a very important book on Braj and collected manuscripts, described the temple as a, as a as a casino in London. Mm. Or others have talked about the bastard architecture, right? This idea of a bastard architectural style. And again, James Ferguson describes this style as a bastard style because it brings together. British architecture. For me, again, what is also important, that it also brings in what we would call Islamic architecture. So it's not just citing British neoclassical architecture, it's also citing Islamic form. The idea of room, for instance, uh, which was so fundamental to Indian Ocean imaginations of a cosmopolitanism is being cited here. So for, in that sense, these citations that are, that are taking, that can take us from Bernini to the idea of room uh, really urged me to think about what what does it mean? What does it mean for a temple in Vrindavan to cite these dispersed elements from across the world within the space of one temple? And for me, that was really trying to think about a certain uh, a certain idea of, of of a globality, a certain idea of a, of a certain cosmopolitanism in the period of colonialism. Now, by the 19th century, when this temple is being built, uh, this is a moment of high colonialism. Mathura and Vrindavan has been brought under British rule. It is precisely at that moment that the patron is drawing elements from diverse parts of, of the world to create this very cosmopolitan architecture. For me, it's really what I would argue. It's an eco-cosmopolitan architecture because it's working with the notion of akasha or ether as a way of thinking about connectivities, way of thinking about a certain visualization of this practice of sound. But this is also a point where middle-class Hinduism is developing, and there's a critique of these libidinous practices of love uh, that were were central to Vaishnavism in Braj. So the so 
the patron, for instance, uh, I would ar- I argue in my chapter is that it's it's about uh, it's about it's about the critique of that sort of a middle class Hinduism that has cleaned the religion and reframed it within a certain Judeo-Christian tradition. There's a lot of scholarship on that, and that this insistence on working with pre-19th century religious practices, but also pre-19th century imaginations of a connectivity was what I thought I wanted to bring in. And ether in that sense was the element, the fifth element in Vaishnava philosophy. Uh, Akasha is a natural element in Vaishnava philosophy, really connects the local with that sort of a multi-vectored fluidity of the of the global or the planetary, so as to speak, through sound, of course. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting book, and you you do you you set up these kind of creative and unique ways of rethinking our material subjects uh, that I think will be very productive for for the study of religion. Of course, there's there's a lot more to the book, so I hope people will check it out. But is there anything perhaps that you you'd like to uh, to say before I let you go uh, that we didn't get to cover? I think for me, what is what I really am interested in is trying to bring together a sort of understanding of religious practices in in diverse parts of the world and and how climate change sort of provides a way of decentering the anthropomorphism that is so fundamental to history of art. I mean, if you think about art history, uh, whether we focus on religious material or even non-religious material, it's about the artist, it's about the patron, it's about the audience. Art history, like other forms of humanities, is fundamentally anthropocentric. So for me, given the, the 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 crisis that we have lived through and we are living through it really is about decentering the human and decentering the conceit of the human and what sort of a religious studies can emerge if we take seriously stone water rocks plants as co-actors or co-makers of religion and that for me is what i am invested in the book really wanted to put forward a method or a way of thinking about these non-anthropocentric histories. Well, congratulations uh, again on the award and thanks for taking time to talk about it. No, thank you for inviting me. And it was, a, it was wonderful to chat. Mm-hmm.